Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your show hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. In this episode, we took on what we consider one of the most important challenges of our times, an attack on science, in this case, specifically nutrition science, at a time when what we choose to eat can have profound effect on our health, environment, and the health of the next generation. Hope you enjoy. And we're back today, Dean. Glad to be here for another podcast. What a week it's been for us. Amazing week. We woke up one morning last week to crazy news online and on social media about choline and brain health and how people who have choline deficiency can actually be dumb. We woke up to crazy headlines from magazines that talked about vegetarians and vegans having higher risk of stroke despite having lower vascular risk factors. So we have a lot to talk about today. I know. I mean, for us, it it was significant at two levels. One is we have kids, we have family. And we worry because we've raised them with uh, with a plant based diet. At the you know that's their food uh, that from the from birth till now, and uh, they don't seem to be dumb. They didn't. They've done well. I mean, two of them they both got into college at age twelve, and I'm, I'm boasting here, but but I just want to throw that in there. Mm-hmm. And um, so we were worried uh, from a personal point of uh, you know view. Um, although not worried, but just yeah, th- I don't you think get I was disturbed that that information like that can get out there. And, and then on the science side, like, wait a second, we, that's our life, you know, our masters, our research, our work, our clinical work, our, our you know, uh, graduate work, everything we've done has been around nutrition and science and mountains and mountains of evidence points to the contrary, yet all of a sudden a paper comes out uh, that says something outlandish like this, or actually a couple of papers. So we were, we were curious, as scientists, Although everybody's biased, let's put that up front, uh, but still you try to make sure that you, um, you go into it with, uh, with an open mind because even if it is accurate data, it doesn't mean that you know, it's going to completely change the field, but it might actually shape the direction a little bit. That's mm-hmm. the whole nature of science, right. the beauty of it, the humility of it, which is our favorite statement, to the best of our knowledge today. Right. That's it. Uh, that's how, where we start and that's where we end, which is... We are open to information, but it's got to be accurate information. Right. You know, so with that, uh, we 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 have a challenge ahead of us because to us it feels like science is under attack. I mean, we it's always been under attack. It's there's always resistance, but there seems to be something much greater to it now. There's more power to it. Why? Because the venues of dispersion of misinformation uh, are more powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the social media where anybody who can get on there and, and disperse whatever they want. It's crazy that yeah. people who have no background in nutrition, say, for example, or medicine, um, never worked with any patients or families of patients and understand disease process can just wake up one day and read a couple of articles and um, make themselves a, represent, a representative of, of that field. I mean, I, I, I'm always for learning. I'm always for people empowering themselves with knowledge. But there is something to be a scientist and be involved in that process and understanding it better and becoming leaders. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about appeal to authority and saying that only experts have a right to say something in this field because there is no such thing as a penultimate uh, you know, uh, expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's learning and everybody has the right to information. Um, facts are facts, though. We have to have a good method of exchanging information and saying how much weight one can place on that fact because otherwise uh, you know it's the weight of the truth that's important that that becomes a problem and you know you and I always talk to the kids and say it's not just the truth it's the weight of the truth because whatever political inclination you might have whatever uh, philosophical inclination you might have there's a truth to what you're believing but it's the weight of the truth. If you overweigh a truth, it becomes a fallacy. If you underweigh a truth, it becomes a fallacy. Just to throw something quickly ahead of you know, a case study, an anecdotal piece of data is not the same thing as a meta-analysis or, or definitely not the same thing as a population-based study that, that's well studied. So there's a weight difference there. So we were 
um, uh, that's something that I think we are adamant about kind of being part of the conversation, not so much being a teacher or, you know, teaching others, uh, just being a part of the conversation. Yeah. And also the fact that um, it's so important now for people to be aware of the true science out there. And, you know, the it, it's it's difficult for people to have access to true data and to get into the nuances. And I know that it's important for us to rely on experts to describe or um explain all the details of the sciences. But again, I think all of us um, have a responsibility to get to the deeper parts of any publication or paper and understanding it better. I mean, as much as I, you know, I started this, we started this by saying that there's weird science is under attack. And especially now because of the venues, you know, from social media to 300 TV channels and everything else. But there's something positive there as well. Because the same way that negative information gets dispersed, positive information can get dispersed as well. Absolutely. Truth can get dispersed as well. You know, for, for, for our audience to know the difference between different kinds of research. You know, I saw a, um, a podcast, no, a, a YouTube channel where somebody uh, was arguing about the concept of, of a data. And they said, oh, this is randomized clinical trial. And that's, that's, that's it. That's the gold standard. No, it, it's not. There are, the, one venue of research does not make truth. You have to have multiple venues, and depending depends on the science. Nutrition it needs a little more data, a little more uh, nuanced approach, and more broader approach to it, as opposed to physics or mathematics. The science that we're we're dealing with, which is nutrition and lifestyle, you have to have both short term and long term data. Right, right. You have to have, you know, anecdotal as well as, or more importantly, randomized controlled trial, but even that's not gold standard, as well as population-based data. And all of these together give you a good idea of data because otherwise any one of them by themselves are quite open to manipulation. That's if you look at it in a pejorative sense or to error right. and bias. It's flawed already, <clears throat> the method of data collection and uh, analysis and all the confounding factors that can uh, you know, mess up the data. Um, but I agree with you. I think it's looking at multiple tracks of research in multiple populations, whether small or large, over a long period of time is what makes the biggest difference. Yeah, and, and, and this is, there's, that's one level of challenge that we have, which is the science itself. And it's challenging enough, and we'll talk about that. But but the the other challenge is that we as humans are um, comfortable with comfort. I mean, that seems redundant, perseverative, but but we are. I mean, our, we're pattern recognizers, and our survival dependent was dependent on finding certain patterns that only increase survival and not changing from that. Whereas science is all about change. Yeah, so the two are a little bit contradictory in a way. Where, uh, where most humans, all of us, like something that we have learned, something that has been given to us, and we want to retain that uh, because that's comfortable, especially whether right or wrong, it's not causing too much overt chaos in our life. We're going to stick to it no matter what. And science actually asks for something more, change. In fact, the beauty of science, which most people see as weakness, is that it's open to change. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that often is said is, you know, in medical school, <clears throat> this is a lecture I heard, that the first day I came in, they said that 50% of everything you learn is wrong, and the other 50% will change. Well, <laughs> that, 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 and that's seen as a negative. It's not. Because that iterative process of change and learning and change is what has gotten us all the benefits of science. Now, I know that there are some negatives that have come to, with science, but that's not science's problem. That's the users of science. Right. The person behind it. The people behind it. So, but science itself has gotten us to fly a, you know, multi-ton piece of metal with 500 people in it at 700 miles an hour across an ocean. And that was an iterative process. Uh, we were in Kitty Hawk and we saw the first flight. From there, in less than 100 years, or actually around 100 years, we're now at a point where we are flying, you know, faster than the speed of sound. That's a scientific method. Right. Errors, corrections, and all of that uh, included in there. So <clears throat> the scientific method or how we use science is critically important for, for all of us to be aware of 
because the alternative is that anybody can pick any anything that seems inconsistent and break down the path of change. Right. And that's what we're seeing. And every step of change throughout history, be it on a social level as far as women's rights and you know human rights and all of that, to you know even science, there has been resistance to change. And and the only way to resist the resistance as a redundancy is to have the tools. And the tools are something that we all share with each other because and 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 where that's where the positive side of social media and YouTube comes in. Uh, although a lot of people don't like seeing things and watching things that are outside of their comfort zone, but that's where we all learn. I mean, that's what you and I always look at things that are contrary to what, what we believe. Yes. And and it kind of opens up different venues of thinking. If it doesn't change your thought, at least you learn tools uh, to, to adapt your thinking. So with, 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 with nutrition, there's a, another level of challenge. Right. Nutrition is not physics. Mm-hmm. It's not chemistry. Our tools of data collection are not perfect. In fact, we're still using antiquated tools. It will change soon with, with the smart tools and AI and, and, and Internet of Things and these kind of tools. We're still collecting data with either self-reported or you know 24-hour diary or things of that nature, which are useful, especially when your data set is large, mm-hmm. but they're not perfect. <clears throat> and and so we deal with that. And the different venues of information that comes to us are either retrospective, meaning looking at past history, or cross-sectional, meaning that you're looking at the population at one time. Yeah. Or case studies or, you know, these kind of things. They're all important data, but they're not in themselves perfect. Even the randomized control trials, where you actually take a group uh, that, that takes the intervention and the other one that takes the, you know, the placebo and moving forward and see a change. Even that's not perfect because even its best version can only see short term, not right. long term. That's true. So we have to look at all of the data together. So it's important for us to accept the fact that it's important to be comfortable with discomfort and change yes. and not be a comfort seeker or a past protector. Yeah. Um, always examine the knowledge that you already have, no matter what it is, to see what the latest data is and how we can incorporate that in our lives. And the outcome is always living a healthy life and a long life with our loved ones. I mean, that's the ultimate goal. Reducing suffering. That's true. Increasing joy, you know, saving the planet, um, making sure that, you know, our children, our grandchildren are, uh, you know, we leave them a better world. That's the most important but, thing. Uh, but but the, the, the thing about, you know, you, you brought this up, the past protectors and future seekers, I've, you know, we've written about this. Two groups, and it starts with our limbic system. Now, you know, this is brain health and beyond. This is the beyond part. <laughs> Go for it. The anatomy of the brain, and you know, at some point we'll talk about the, yes. the limbic system and the frontal lobe and uh, these amazing tools where we can look at how human behavior operates. Mm-hmm. Um, a great part of how we we think actually we take pride in our thinking, but a lot of what we you know, the way we think is actually reflex. In computer science, they call it macro programs. There's programs that just are set in motion, they repeat themselves. Even our political views, even our belief system, macro programs. Our choices for food. Our choices <laughs> for everything, uh, macro programs that are set in motion early on. And deep thinking is not something we do by choice because it takes a lot of energy, as it is. Yes. We use 25% of body's energy, this little three-pound organ. And and I'm sure we're using quite a bit of it right now, but but it's a lot of energy that it consumes, so it wants to be efficient and, and just use enough to survive. And for survival and reproducing, you just need to make sure that you learn the patterns that have made you survive and stick to that. This bush is a bush and not a saber-toothed tiger. That's mm-hmm. it. Whatever it takes. To, and beyond that and the nuances that have come with with culture and with civilization is sometimes too much. So... Our natural brain is the past protecting, meaning that preserving the status quo, whatever made me survive to this point. So I called a a group of people, individuals, that are really driven by that central theme of the limbic system, past protecting. Whatever language it's created is for the purpose of protecting the past, protecting the status quo, because it's comfortable. And then the second group, much, much smaller group, 
And, and none of us are in one or the other completely. We vacillate from, we, we jump between, but let's say that if the greater part of their life is in future seeking. Now, future seekers are crazy. I know that this topic is not, this talk is not about that, but we will get to that topic some I other time. I love it. I love it. It's so interesting. Yeah. And, and, and the future seekers are actually going to places that are uncomfortable. Why would you do that? What's wrong with you? Why would you start thinking about things that are uncomfortable? Why would you start, you know, uh, exploring things that are uncomfortable? We've done it for centuries this way. Yeah, why would you challenge the something that everybody around you accepts as the rule? Yes, and, and that, that's crazy. And, and anybody who brings dissonance, naturally, if you either accept it or you ignore it, which actually doesn't work very well because there's a thing in the brain called cognitive dissonance, that dissonance especially if somebody considers themselves a thinker, that dissonance is so uncomfortable that you have to create language to, to, to dissuade it. Either mm-hmm. it's a, you're making fun of it to get rid of it, you make jokes about it, you, you make um, uh, you know, outlandish statements to get rid of it, but you have to do something to get rid of it. So the features, the battle is in the, the, those two realms, the past protectors and future seekers. And... That's where we are seeing the battle line right now. Right. It's interesting that it, it you, you see it in different walks of life. You see it in different platforms. Yes. You see it in political belief systems. Okay, you let's see stick it. to the nutrition. <laughs> it's a lot safer. Oh, we'll just stick to the brain health for now. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you see it in families. You see it uh, in relationships. Yes. Um, and you got safe all of a sudden. The same, <laughs> yes. The same yeah. thing is happening in science right now. It is. It is. And, and, and we see that when it comes to nutrition and people saying that, no, a plant-based diet is healthy it, and, and, and it's the best diet there is. Yet um, there's resistance, and and you can see the visceral when 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 you and I bring it up in a in a, a, a group or population that's not comfortable with it. You see the visceral discomfort in the body. Oh, absolutely. I mean, these are not bad people. We're no, not bad no. people. They're not bad people. Where everybody's good, but it's just comfort level. It's almost as if a door is closing somewhere in their mind to a new concept or to a foreign concept. But we all have that. Right. I mean, I mean what we, you and I always say is, okay, what, is, we keep, what are we, we keep doing? We ourselves in check. Yeah, what are the, we doing that's like that? Remember the question that we asked the children, okay, you know, somebody doesn't agree with you on something, try to remind yourself or think about what you are doing right now that seems very harsh and that you are not really challenging yourself about it. Correct. I mean, it, it, there are, every one of us are doing this. And I think that's a critical point to bring. Uh, you know, we did a small talk on choline, and, and we'll talk about that more and, and, and stroke. But I think uh, th- that that's just a symptom. The underlying pathology or problem is that we're living in a world which is changing rapidly. I mean, if people don't know, within within 10 years, AI is going to revolutionize the world. In artificial fact, intelligence. Uh, yeah, artificial intelligence. There will be, there are no future um, you know, uh, um, uh, people who are futurists. futurists. There are, yeah. you know, uh, just 50, 20 years ago, could anybody envision, I know somebody could, but the majority of people, I couldn't, that you would have a your the entire library of the world or m- major component of all the libraries in your pocket. And when I tell my kids the story of how I, when I used to go to Maryland University and I used to go through Fish, I'm aging myself here. So uh, <laughs> every time I say this, Aisha acts, acts like she doesn't understand what I'm saying, but that's okay. No, uh, I've been there too. Yeah, the Fish, and then you wrote it down on a little card, and then you went to the sixth floor and got the journal, and then that's then you started research. Now I just open up the computer, go to Google Scholar, then go to Medline, and done. That's crazy. I forget about that. In my phone, I can do that. Yes. In 10 to 15 years, the world will be completely different. So you're saying that we can't even imagine what the future looks like? And we can't. And, and with that degree of change around us, that's threatening so many people. That's true. And then some crazy people saying, wait a second, the burger you were eating, you shouldn't be eating it for multiple reasons. You know, environment, this, that, and other. But health. Wait a second. We've been doing this for thousands of years. Why is it that is it wrong, it's wrong now? And that creates dissonance, mm-hmm. discomfort, right. pain. You have to challenge everything. I mean, I did. You remember uh, 15 years ago, for me, it was a sudden thing, thousands of miles away. I was eating you know, meat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
And then all of a sudden, some, somebody, some, some crazy person brought some idea in my head that caused so much dissonance that I wasn't comfortable with the answers I was giving back. So I had to study and research and look. And even when we started our work in UCSD and, and, and you did in Columbia, we, we, we looked at the data and it was just not satisfactory. Right. We had to look at a different way in lifestyle. And then you look at the lifestyle data when it comes to heart disease, Dr. Esselstein, Dr. Ornish. Yes. I mean, all the, you know, everybody that's done research shows that lifestyles on the diet side, whole food plant-based diet was profoundly protective against diabetes, against heart disease, against cancer. So we took our journey into brain health. We've talked about that before. So, but th- that's, that was the dissonance that caused us to change direction. And that's happening rapidly. So now, why wouldn't a clickbait that says, oh, a vegan diet or plant-based diet is going to give you dementia, not resonate and give comfort? Because whoever is going to create the language for me, I'm going to stick to that. Yeah. So we are, you know, this battle line is, is an important one. No, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad we're talking about it, specifically going into nutrition. I mean, there are some... Um, we actually have some philosophical arguments against it too. I mean, there's several ways of um, addressing this. You hear people saying things like, you know, but this diet is natural. You know, stick to the natural diet. And or for example, when they say things like, our ancestors ate this way. You know, appeal to tradition. Yes. Uh, or when when people say things like, but everybody's different. Yeah. Everybody's body's different, so they should just follow, or, you know, what's good for them. How do you know that? Um, or the redu- reductionist approach, instead of looking at foods, you know, focusing too much on micronutrients and carbohydrates and fats and proteins. We don't need micronutrients, fats and proteins. We eat food. So all of this can actually be addressed in a very constructive way. Yeah, and, and, and appeal to masses. You remember when we first started this? One of the attacks was that, who are these guys? They only have 16 followers. You know, I, <laughs> I know remember. this. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that was our first YouTube video. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> Somebody's like, who the hell are you? You just have 16 followers. Yeah, and, and I know this other doctor, yeah, that has like 60,000 followers. I was like, wait a second, <laughs> when did appeal? Or you remember when we went to this one gathering, and we're not going to name names, and this young man got up who was supposed to be the speaker for the, for the nutrition element, the for the brain, brain health, health element. element yes. No background in nutrition, no background. In, he was a journalist. I think he's just good looking. That's he's definitely good looking. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I challenged the fact that he said that eggs are the fundamental, fundamentally important part of, of building a better brain. And I, of course, I couldn't, you both of us couldn't stay quiet. Right. And somebody came to us and said, Dr. Sherzai. Do you know that, and I was waiting for some, some, some scientific uh, response, that he has 600,000 followers. On and Instagram. Was, on Instagram. And I was waiting for something else to, to, to follow, <laughs> and nothing. Or, or the YouTube uh, you know, speaker of the day, you know, right. Dr. Such and Such had this video on it. N- nobody should take any of us seriously outside of the science that we present. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't use tricks like, you know, a, a separation, or, which is another thing they do is like, oh, you know yourself best. Yeah, and you know, just rely on yourself. By the way, why don't you listen to me? That's a way of separating the person from the science, from the facts, from the, you know, expertise. There, let's address each of these, you know, right. the, the, the appeal to, to the fact that they said it's natural, naturalistic right. appeal, right. I guess, uh, 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 fallacy where uh, something is natural. Let's say, first of all, is it natural? That's one level, which is validity. And then utility. We always, you know, you and I always say that any question you should approach it multiple ways, but two main ways is validity and utility. Both of them should be there. Right. Is it really natural to, to eat meat? And is it unnatural to eat vegetables? And the data does not show that. No. No, as far as um, um, uh, the, the, the fact that history, as far as, you know, uh, timeline, there's no data. Even, even the paleo data shows otherwise. Right, right. So that's, that's one element that we have to kind of address. And, and, and we can have a whole talk about this, about the, na- the, uh, the fact that whether it's natural or not. And then the utility of that, let's say it is natural. Let's say that these, these small little canines that can't even rip a pa- piece of paper was there to rip meat. Yeah, I, I, would, I would ask anybody, look at the data of, of those who eat raw meat 
how many of them get you know diseases like botulism and 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 uh, you know uh, salmonella parasites. And, and 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 parasites right. and and now even uh, bubonic plague in in, in uh, has come back in some some populations that's scary if it was natural why did you have to cook it right yeah so the, so the natural argument and the next one is the um, appeal to authority you know this person said it or this scientist said it mm-hmm. um, don't even uh, here's my you know Thing, uh, take on this. Don't even listen to us as an appeal to authority. If our arguments are making sense, if they're making sense across multiple domains and time, meaning that the, the argument we're making is not just based on an anecdote, it's not just based on one or two elements, and we're actually making argument across multiple domains, and not just based on our own data, but other people that we have no connection to, and it's not being supported by some industry, then you say, even there, you say, okay, they have a little bit more uh, weight, or not them, their their argument has a little more weight. But anything less than that is, is an appeal to authority or one-off piece of data. And that's been the source of all the chaos in the last few years, that's hasn't true. it? That's true, absolutely. From the keto to paleo to all these arguments. The carnivore diet. The carnivore diet. That just blows my mind. Yeah. I mean, just a a couple of people here and there saying something and and, and everybody just following because, oh, because of confirmation bias. That's the powerful tool Mm -hmm. to keep people to their their confirmation. I always say, education doesn't get rid of confirmation. That just gives you better language to confirm the, the previous bias. That's true. So don't take anybody seriously, including us, unless our art and unless and just take the weight of the argument based on the breadth of the argument and the reproducibility of the argument and and whether others have been able to do the same thing across time and space. And and when it comes to nutrition, you say to the best of our knowledge today, yeah. this is good enough. I I love that statement. Yeah. I love that statement because it's uh, subject to scrutiny. And um, it also allows you to keep on changing it as new data comes. Correct. And look at the entirety of, of the data instead of one paper at a time based on, you know, a famous author or a famous university posting it. Speaking of authors and universities, let's jump to what happened last week. Um, yes. And, you know, all the conversations we've had. I mean, this um, it's a great example of how um, the media, um, as well as, you know, some scientists who unfortunately, don't have the integrity to present um, true science and the truth um, pr- appropriately to the population can ca- can cause chaos. Um, let's start with the choline paper. So the choline paper was um, interesting because uh, it was published by an author um, from, uh, from a university. And she basically in that paper said <coughs> that people who have low choline actually can be at a higher risk of developing brain diseases and brain damage, specifically uh, birth defects. And, and people took it seriously because it was published in BMJ, British Correct. Medical Journal. Correct. And it was a, it was a nutritionist. Yes. So, so this lady <coughs> is a nutritionist or, you know, as BBC put it, a leading nutritionist. Nutritionist, um, and um, the paper was just all over the place. Well, first of all, people thought it was a research article, and it wasn't. It was an editorial, which is essentially an opinion piece. Correct. And um, what she did was she looked at some of the papers and data about choline um, in the previous few years, and she showed concern that we're not addressing it. I mean, granted, choline is an important essential um, element in our diet, but she failed to do several things that made us wonder what her intentions were. And worst of all, when you looked at the funding or the, the agency that funded her and the paper was actually the meat industry. And she's an advisor for the choline um, advisory panel Not as choline, well. the meat. Meat advisory program. Yeah, and she actually is a choline expert in the meat industry. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, So, you know, combining all of those things together, it just kind of left a bad taste in my mouth thinking like, okay, so the paper that you put out in your opinion piece is actually a mouse model. She really did actually put a mouse model data of mice having babies that had chromosomes of Down syndrome and how when they were not given enough choline, the babies actually were abnormal. 
and that she she basically extrapolated that into human population and she extrapolated Alzheimer's disease out of that animal model too, which is is crazy. And then the second piece of data that she puts out was based on um, a very small, very flawed study. And then she went on to say things like, I think we should address choline and how animal products have the highest amount of choline in our diet. She also did not post the fact that Plant-based foods like wheat germ and quinoa and beans have enough choline, and we can all get enough choline by eating a plant-based diet. One other piece of data that she used was uh, what's called reverse causation. So she looked at preemie babies, and then they looked at, well, it wasn't her research. Uh, she looked at other others who had done research, uh, preemies, and then they looked at their choline levels. And the choline levels in preemies were lower. So, oh, Wait a second, it must be the choline. Out of all the things that are low in, in preemies, lots of things are low, this one thing must be the cause of the being premature. And it's not. It, that's, that's reverse causation. And so with very sparse data, with weak data, with, with three levels of extrapolation, an opinion paper becomes the centerpiece of all the magazines. Right. I mean, it was all over the place. And with outlandish statements, as we read at the beginning, such as, you know, it's cause, um, choline deficiency might be the cause of dumbing down of society and oh. things of that nature. The other problem is that there's never been evidence that we are choline deficient. Even right. the levels are set arbitrarily. Agreed, yes. And you know, at, at the time that they set the levels, um, the data was quite sparse. They, yeah. they, they looked at people who were getting intravenous nutrition or nutrition through their veins. And uh, when these individuals, obviously hospitalized and very, very sick, when they got that nutrition through their veins, they developed um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is a liver damage secondary to choline deficiency. Those are very extreme situations. Right. I mean, nobody actually goes through that. And when they were given choline, they were fine. So the levels were were. So the levels were actually created or they were determined based on a sick condition. Correct, correct. And there's nothing beyond that, nothing actually tangible and meaningful beyond that. And the other irony is we make choline and right. the fact that even under situations of starvation where, you know, seven days of fasting, that people still had, you know, don't go below 50% in choline levels. And then the other thing is that this you know, choline levels or status of choline mm -hmm. has never been correlated with cognitive deficits nope. directly, causally, yes, uh, prospectively. And so it's it's a beautiful model of how you create an abnormality. We call it FED, you know, a false exaggerated uh, deficiency. And, and once you created that deficiency, false deficiency, then you kind of link things to it. So yes. it's uh, multiple levels of, of, of unusual, um, uh, st uh, well, it's not statistics, but manipulation. Yeah, presentation. Yeah, so, but that's, that's uh, going at the micro level, reductionist level. The reductionist level is, is important because um, it, it, this, will, this technique has been used over and over mm -hmm, again. Mm -hmm. When, it, you know, it was B12 deficiency, but the latest data shows that actually, you know, the plant-based people who eat a healthy uh, plant-based actually have higher levels of B12. Right. Same thing was at omega-3. Same thing was found recently. When you've had eaten a healthy uh, plant-based diet, the levels are just fine. Then it was iron deficiency. Actually, the story is reverse in iron. The iron that you get, which is heme iron in meat, is actually toxic. Right. And and you can get plenty of iron in, 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 in plant-based food. Then it was iodine. And, and, and the fact that, uh, you know, certain foods are not fortified, but, but if somebody eats a fortified, well-balanced diet, they're, they're more than fine as far as, in fact, uh, people who are on a plant-based diet have lower immune disorders, yeah. such as Hashimoto's and other diseases. So repeatedly, this method of finding a micro-abnormality, and by the way, that's not even abnormality, micro-difference, making it seem abnormal, and then extrapolating to the bigger diet has been used will and will be used in the future so if we are aware of that that this is the technique you find a change a difference between two groups in this case meat eaters and non-meat eaters and then you label the difference as abnormal in the plant-based group where that's never been shown and then you tr extrapolate it to disease mm -hmm. that creates enough chaos for people to settle back to their you know a priori prior 
beliefs and prior comfort levels. Whereas most people want to have a healthy life for yes. themselves and for their children. But imagine if you're given 10 different kind of data and often, how often have we gone to parties and they said, you know, I don't know what to believe anymore. Yeah, all the time. That was the whole intention. Yeah. The whole intention is to create that kind of discomfort so that the person says, well, whatever I've been doing so far, I'm, I'm alive, I'm talking to you. Right. But realizing that chronic disease is something that happens later, that damage that happens cognitively for their children and their, you know, their, uh, you know, especially even in childhood. We did a paper, we looked at a paper that uh, even at childhood level, Diets high in fat and sugar have consequences. Absolutely. That's never seen because that's a more protracted effect that, that you don't see in daily life. So throwing chaos into the formula is the whole intent. Yeah. There's, this is not accidental. The choline paper was not accidental. It was paid for by meat industry. The writing was by a person that would know better written in a way to actually, you know, create that kind of dissonance. She actually is a very good scientist. If she you is. look at her previous papers, she writes impeccably. Yes. And she's written things about population uh, sciences mm -hmm. and epidemiology in the past. So this was very odd. I'm going to say something unusual. I don't think she was a good scientist because I think part of being a good scientist, scientist is having the ethics of science. Agreed. Uh, in the face of difficulty... You know, when you and I wrote the, the book, Alzheimer's Solution, one of the first things we heard was, you know, you're saying whole food plant-based. If you just name it Mediterranean, which is sexy and everybody likes it, you will sell hundreds of thousands of more books. But yeah, that's not ethical because you've done the research. Right. What is the what is the the biggest study that's been done in the last few years was the one that Aisha was the first author in, right. which will be published soon, uh, looking at stroke and nutrition and the nutrition you looked at was Mediterranean diet. Well, that's because, you know, when when you work with a large database, um, there is a particular way of scoring dietary adherence. And Mediterranean diet has been studied over and over again. Um, but I actually wanted to see what it what it meant, what it was. And when you parse it out, I know you, have, you and I have talked about this in the previous podcast. Never heard. It. Yeah. <laughs> it's the plants. It's yes. the vegetables, the fruits, the whole grains, the beans. Yes. Um, the nuts and seeds. And, uh, you know, as far as fats are concerned, it's mono and polyunsaturated fats. Those are the ones that are good and they lower risk of stroke. And saturated fats, which are found in animal-based uh, products, or, or bad. They yes. are the ones that cause atherosclerosis and um, stroke. And in the study that I was involved in, stroke was reduced by 44% in people who adhere to this kind of diet. By the way, you get good score on a plant-based diet. You get a bad score when you consume dairy, meat, and any other sources of saturated fat. So that's, and that's not just this study. We've seen this so many times. And Repeatedly. From, all different populations, whether it was the Adventist Health Study or the Memory and Aging Project from Rush University, the Kaiser Permanente Study, um, over and over again, the Nurses Health Study. But, but the argument them. against this would be, oh, those are old studies, as if as if science become, becomes old. If the method was valid right. and the population was well studied, it's good. And actually, it was an old study. There are, most of them are newer studies. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just one venue of study. There were random. There were way more randomized clinical trials that showed the benefits of uh, you know whole food plant based. Yes. There are much more review studies. We did reviews, right. several reviews, one on stroke and nutrition, and another one Parkinson's and nutrition, which have shown this and many others as well. And then when it comes to applicability and you know the the clinical trials, I mean Dr. Esselstyn's study showed incredible results. When you cut down animal products and fats from food, you actually are able to reverse coronary uh, artery disease. You are able to reverse significant damage that most doctors would just close their eyes and turn around from. Correct. And by the way, the brain is not, well, it is very different from other organs, but the mechanisms are the same. If you think that the brain is made of fat and therefore you need fat, that, that can't be further from the truth. Right. There's, we get fat, we make fat, we're, we're fine. We don't need extra fat. Uh, and, and, and on top of that, the pathways to those cells, 400 miles of vessels, 
you're damaging that every time you're having saturated fat. Right. I mean, we're living in an era where, you know, we have data showing that children as young as nine years of age can actually have atherosclerosis. Can you believe that? Yes. The diet is so bad that children have atherosclerosis. So it was a very irresponsible paper, this choline paper. And then on the, on the, you know, uh, backing of that, or right after that came the stroke paper. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I think the brain was under attack. Science was under attack and the <laughs> yes. brain was under attack last week. Yeah, the, the, the stroke paper was based on um, a study uh, that came from the Epic Oxford study. Correct. Now, the Epic Oxford study is a very legitimate database. Let's just say that. It's a legitimate database. They've published a lot of great papers in the past. Um, it, they have a large population. The population has been followed 48, for a long 000. time. 48,000, a little over 48,000, followed for 18 years. And um, this paper was odd because, uh, first of all, again, you know, it was sensationalized and uh, the titles were crazy Things like vegetarians have a much higher risk of stroke than meat eaters or vegetarians are at a higher risk of brain damage. Yes. Um, so it's worth discussing that. Correct. I mean, uh, again, in this case, I mean, we just don't want to act like everybody uh, has uh, has it in for, uh, for um, uh, nutrition and, and want to just create chaos. There are sometimes, you know, studies done legitimately, but, uh, but poorly. Or the extrapolation from the data to to general public, or um, you know, spreading the information is done falsely. That's true. So this study was was done uh, on, like we said, on forty eight thousand people. Yes. It, it there was a um, oversampling of the um, uh, vegetarians, yes, meaning that thirty three point seven percent of them were vegetarians. Yeah, because general population it's much smaller, five percent or so, depending on what population you're looking at. And they were all based on UK in yeah. UK, and the, they they collected data from nineteen ninety three. To 2001. 18 years. Correct. Yeah, and 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 although the the percentage of vegetarians was large, the vegan population was extremely small. That's true. Yeah, and so a couple of things that we have to say right up front is the numbers for the vegans were so small that uh, up front I don't even have to go further that you can't extrapolate anything from that the, uh, from that population. I agree. There were only about 3.8 percent vegans in the entire population. So what they did was they lumped up vegetarians and vegans together um, for statistical uh, significance and, you know, to to um, basically make the study look better um, because they couldn't do statistics on the vegans. And so um, what they did was they wanted to look at these dietary patterns and the incidence of ischemic heart disease and stroke or angina. Um, as far as stroke is concerned, they looked at total stroke, ischemic stroke, and hemorrhagic stroke. So Strokes, there are two main types of strokes. Ischemic strokes, where a clot blocks the path of blood in a vessel and the brain cells don't get enough oxygen and then they die off. And then hemorrhagic stroke is the type where the blood vessel bursts open and there's bleeding in the brain. Now, when you do statistics, if the population you're studying is significantly different than the, the, the data that, that epidemiology has shown us, something is wrong as far as collection of the data. Right. So in, in the national studies and in global studies, ischemic strokes are far outweigh hemorrhagic strokes. About 85% of all strokes are ischemic. And about 15% are hemorrhagic. In the West. Correct. In Japan and some other countries, that's a little Maybe different. Maybe a little different. But, but in the West and UK, it definitely falls along those lines. But the numbers here were very, very skewed and different. Yeah, that, that was very odd. So they totaled, the total number of strokes that they found was 1,072. But get, get this. Only 819 of them were stratified into ischemic and hemorrhagic. So basically, they didn't know the 253 types of stroke, what they were. They were unknown. Yeah. And and that's about 24% of strokes not classified properly. So imagine you have a disease that you're trying to study, and and you're trying to get statistics on that, yet 24% of it, you don't know so that that group that could fall that could change the data one way or the other is classified as unknown. Right. Your 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 statistics are thrown off right there. Right. Um, so and then when you look at the percentage of ischemic and hemorrhagic, I'm just going to. I think it's okay if I just say yes, that right, right now. Um, you know, as, as geeky neurologists, I think we kind of nerded out on this one. Um, meat eaters 
66% of them had ischemic strokes and 33% of them had hemorrhagic strokes. That's a very high number for hemorrhagic strokes in a, in a population. That's just crazy. So they, the, uh, the fact that that number was actually abnormal in the vegetarians, you could say, okay, so that's where the problem is. Right. Vegetarians have higher stroke. But why would the meat eaters not fall along population lines? That's true. So that's if true. that's your control, let's say, then you would expect them to fall along the line of the population. And they didn't either. So there are a couple of things wrong here. One is there is a misclassification problem, meaning that a too large of a population is not classified correctly as far as stroke is concerned. This could easily have changed the number of hemorrhagic and ischemic strokes if they were classified right. So yeah. that's one problem. Right. The second problem is that even in the diagnosis of the strokes, even the meat eaters, the controls, and the, um, the non-control group, both their numbers were way off. Right. That's true. Yes. And, and you know, if you look at um, the percentages of ischemic and hemorrhagic in other um, dietary groups, they were same. Uh, for fish eaters, 62% of them had um, ischemic and 38% hemorrhagic. For vegans, though, 70% of them were ischemic and 29.6% of them were hemorrhagic. So they kind of actually got better as far as the statistics is concerned, and they followed the norm and the national uh, levels. Correct. I mean, if you take that uh, on its surface, uh, they actually did better than everybody else. Right. But, but I'm, I'm being an honest uh, scientist, we would say their numbers are too small to truly extrapolate. They can't be significant. Right. And uh, so that's, that's one problem. And of the 819 strokes that they evaluated, vegans... Uh, comprised of only 27 of them. So there were only 27 vegans who had a stroke as compared to vegetarians. About 179 of them had strokes. Now, here's the, the final kicker. And when they did the initial statistics, vegans and vegetarians did way better than meat eaters in right. every parameter. We knew that the risk factors, and in fact, in this database, Previous studies, previous publications have repeatedly shown that um, vegetarians have lower blood pressure, lower diabetes, lower, you know, and uh, across the uh, parameters. Yes. All those are risk factors for stroke, mm -hmm. which is unbelievable that the risk factors of a stroke would be so much better, yet stroke itself would be worse than vegetarians. And, you know, the fact that they actually had lower risk of ischemic heart disease and higher risk of stroke also doesn't make any sense. Correct. Because it's the same vascular disease. Correct. How is it that the heart vessels are healthier, but as soon as you go up the neck, you become unhealthy on a, on a vegetarian, yeah. vegan diet? You're, you have lower blood pressure, which is a huge risk factor. Yes. Diabetes, you have lower risk. Yeah, uh, the cholesterol, cholesterol is uh, lo panel looks much better. Much better. And you have lower ischemic heart disease. And you have lower BMI. Yes. And yet... Uh, you have higher risk of a, a stroke, uh, including hemorrhagic. But but initially, actually, they were better. So what they did was the numbers were so skewed that they what they did what they did was what they call correction. Right. Um, so they th there was actually a, a written piece about it too. But what they did was they overcorrected for meat eaters, which means that when they looked at the numbers. The vegetarians and the vegans actually did much better. So they thought that there may have been other lifestyle factors for meat eaters that made them look unhealthy. So they adjusted and adjusted and adjusted for so, high blood pressure, for diabetes, for smoking, for cholesterol. Meaning that if they had bad blood pressure, bad cholesterol, why would you make that kind of a correction? Then this would be the extrapolation. So when they did all of that, I mean, that's quite a bit of gymnastics. Yeah. At the end... Even, even at the end, the statistics wasn't that impressive. In fact, the number of people that actually, the number of the risk went up by three cases of per, hemorrhagic, of stroke. hemorrhagic yeah. stroke per thousand over 10 years. And it doesn't really uh, warrant the kind of conclusions that we saw in the news and in social media at and, all. And, and for the heart disease, actually 10 people, 10 fewer people had heart disease and over a year, over 10 years, in the same population. So even by, if you take that uh, for, on its say, face, you're still better off you know, being on this diet. Yes. But there was overcorrection. There was a sampling problem. The, you know, there, is a, there are all these statistical problems that 
you get shocked that a BMJ would would publish something like this. Right. Now, of course, we got suspicious and we looked into funders. Who funded this? Yeah, the funding um, was a little odd. Yeah, and you know, we can't find the direct link like previous paper because it doesn't say meat industry and or egg industry. But but the uh, the, uh, the organizations that, that funded it was uh, very unusual. Yeah, you know, it was a livestock company. Uh, we went to their website, and um, you know, they they keep on saying that they're they're doing good work for the environment and for understanding relationship between disease and environment, and you know, making better decisions uh, for the future. Uh, I don't I, I don't see how they could actually skew the data this way. But that was an odd finding. Yeah, we'll give them the benefit of that and say it was just badly done. I hope uh, but so. But nonetheless, the what, the damage was done. That's all you have to do is to create enough chaos. And because everywhere we went, people asked us, "What do you think about this paper?" You know, I'm worried about stroke. Right. Really, three in a thousand, and then your diabetes risk would go down. Your you know cholesterol, high high blood pressure, heart disease, cancer, all of that is not a concern. But three cases out of ten out of thousand. Over ten years, that's a concern, right? And you know, when when people read the paper, the the number of population, the forty eight thousand one hundred and eighty eight, seems quite large. It is a large population, but you know, to put things into perspective, out of that entire population, only eight vegans had a hemorrhagic stroke. Eight vegans, and you know, I don't wish bad things to happen to people at all, but it's perspective and it's numbers. And it's just outlandish to draw conclusions like vegans and vegetarians are at a higher risk of stroke. They're not. They have lower risk of the vascular risk factors for stroke. They live longer. We know it from different um, studies, from different populations. And um, I'm glad that we kind of dug deeper into the supplemental material to see all of that. And it's available for everyone on their website. I think you should take the liberty of taking a look at all these numbers yourselves. And I think the most important thing we can do and we can all together do is to create a body of knowledge around how to approach this this challenge that, that science is facing. Uh, how to you know separate what's uh, anecdotal data from uh, you know uh, cross-sectional data to a more robust approach to data, multiple domains, including population based in retrospective. Yes, and and we have to all together kind of face this because it's not just it's not an ideology. It's about our health, our kids' health, about sustainability. Yes. Um, so all of that, and we see the product of it every day in our clinics. Strokes in 40-year-olds, 30-year-olds. None of those are because of a vegan diet. I can tell you that. Oh, absolutely. And and we see it. And we live in Loma Linda. We we are in Loma Linda. We see uh, patients in the uh, uh, free clinics and other clinics. Yeah. It's all about the kind of food. And it has to do with, you know, meat, cheese, preservatives, you know, sugar, these kind of diets that, that, that increases the risk. And if we don't do anything, those numbers are massive. Like we say always... A huge part of the population that's never been studied, or not well, is vascular dementia or vascular cognitive impairment. Yes. Where the person is still able to function, but the brain is is beginning to be damaged because of vascular risk factors early on. And they outnumber everybody else, but yet they've not been studied. And we're hoping to study that population. And that's all lifestyle. So that's where we are. Uh, This was the challenge of the week. Uh, I hope that we were able to kind of clean up the language a little uh, and and give some tools. Please um, help us with the language and spreading the information. You know, uh, if you want, you think this uh, podcast is useful, share it with others. Uh, we do these kind of talks once a week, and then we do the podcast, which is longer as well. And uh, tell us if you have any questions that you wanted to be um, addressed. Thank you so much for joining us. 